That's not bad. Try it again. Good evening, everybody. Yeah, much better. Okay, tonight's event would not be possible without support from the Office of the Provost, the Center for Integrative Learning, CAS, and the Office of Alumni Relations. It is my honor to introduce Dr. Donald Schaffner and Dr. Benjamin Chapman. Schaffner is Extension Specialist in Food Science and Distinguished Professor at Rutgers University. His research interests include quantitative microbial risk assessment, predictive food microbiology, hand washing, and cross-contamination. In 2009, he received the International Association for Food Protection, IAFP, Elmer Marth Educator Award for Outstanding Service to the Public. He's provided expertise to the U.S. National Academy of Science, the World Health Organization, and the United Nations. Chapman is Associate Professor in Food Safety Extension Specialist at North Carolina State University. As a teenager, his interest in pathogens and public health was sparked by Outbreak, the classic cable movie. With the goals of safer home food preservation and less foodborne illness, his group designs, implements, and evaluates food safety strategies, messages, and media from farm to fork. He's been instrumental in educating the hurricane-affected public when floods and power outages affect everything from farm fields to home refrigerators. In other words, Dr. Chapman's and Dr. Schaffner's work draws from and contributes to mathematics, film studies, disaster recovery, and risk assessment and management, both corporate and personal. It engages institutional review boards, psychology, and human vulnerabilities. It involves a kind of applied learning essential to cooperative extension work. It links the fields of international relations and communications. And it also intersects with literature, as our guests are also prepared to talk about probable food safety issues in the fifth season world imagined by N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth Trilogy. But the best reason for inviting this podcast to this public liberal arts college comes from a food safety talk listener who wrote this. Food safety talk is the liberal arts of food safety. It encourages us how to think about food safety rather than what to think. Regardless of where you are in the community tonight, I invite you to be thinking about the how. But before I ask you to offer a warm welcome to Dr. Chapman and Dr. Schaffner, I'd like to draw your attention to another guest that we are so pleased to have among us tonight. Marianne Schaffner, Geneseo class of 1958, retired kindergarten teacher, and Dr. Don Schaffner's mom. Mrs. Schaffner and I have been corresponding about the Bear Fountain, and so in token of longstanding and new relationships, I present her with this Keith Walters print of the Bear Fountain. Would everybody give a uh, Okay, now I'm off, and now's the podcast. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think we've ever had such a great introduction. No. We don't do a good job introducing ourselves on the podcast. So. <laughs> um, and we're keeping with that tradition tonight. Yeah. So, so one thing that we have done when we've done these live things is we, we like to do an audience survey. And so um, uh, I'd like to ask you guys some questions. So how many of you have ever heard of a podcast? Let the record show, this is an audio format, so, but let the record show that everybody raised their hands. Um, how many of you have ever listened to a podcast at least once? Okay, most of the hands still going up. 
Um, how many of you would describe yourselves as regular podcast listeners? Okay, so maybe a third of the audience. Okay. How many of you have ever listened to our podcast? And let the record show there's about six hands, and my yeah. mom's not raising her hand, but yeah, I know yeah, she's yeah. listening. Six plus mom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, well, that's, that, that's actually fairly, uh, fairly typical for, uh, for, for these kind of surveys. So, um, so thanks for doing that. Um, just to, so we can get a better sense of, of who you folks are, um, how many of you are faculty? Okay. Um, so, so uh, small, small number of hands. How many of you are undergraduate students? Okay, virtually everybody else raised their hands. Okay. Um, uh, how many of you um, are either consider yourself scientists or are studying the sciences? Okay. Uh, how many of you consider yourselves uh, in the humanities or studying the humanities? Okay. So, um, so that so we're roughly roughly evenly split, split. Maybe a little bit more skewed towards towards the science. So. Did you have any questions for the audience, Ben? No, I think that's the, the amount of polling that I think we need to do. Um, <laughs> it's great, it makes for great it, radio. It is, it does. Um, no, but uh, so, so Don and I have been doing a podcast called Food Safety Talk for the last six and a half or seven years. And um, we kind of got into this, or at least I, I'll, I'll tell my side of the story and getting into it, but we kind of got into it a little bit accidentally. Um, Don and I have known each other for maybe 15 years. We're both in the field of, of food safety. And when I was a graduate student, um, Don was a much older, wiser uh, faculty member. And he still <coughs> is much older and wiser um, than I am. Older, anyway. Uh, yeah. Uh, but um, I, he and I met at a, at a conference. Um, my advisor and, and him were, were are our friends. And... Um, we, we became friends over uh, a four or five year period, and Don's been, he's, you know, even though he's much older than I am. Um, I think they get <laughs> it. Uh, he, it the, the one thing about, um, it, 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 and I can only speak to my, you know, our discipline of food safety is there's a lot of accessibility in, you know, you're learning about something to go meet somebody else who's done research in this area. And so we were at a conference together and, and got talking, and, and the association that that we're part of uh, uh, and where we met is a group called the International Association for Food Protection, which I'm sure sounds really exciting to people that are not in food safety. Um, and it had its 100-year anniversary. And part of that, um, NPR's StoryCorps was uh, invited to collect stories from the food safety world. And so Don and I were paired up together and we spent a half an hour sort of talking about different generations of food safety and how we got into things. And at the end of it, Don said to me, this is when he was, he was way cooler than I am. Um, he said, what we just did is kind of like a podcast. Do you know what a podcast is? And I was like, no. <laughs> um, and so he sent me some, some examples. And we kind of started this like, idea of like, let's just record ourselves talking to each other about food safety things and put it out there on the internet and see what happens. And I mean, literally today we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Dr. Beth McCoy, who I'm not sure how she happened upon us, but found the podcast and has been one of our earliest listeners and corresponders about food safety. And it's really interesting being that we're both in microbiology, food safety, 
and that we, we've been able to connect with someone who's um, in English and, and literature about food safety things. And really, we've, we've recorded, um, I just posted our 165th episode today. Um, we do it every two weeks and talk to each other for about an hour and a half. And we had a really nice um, dinner tonight with, with Don's parents and, and talking about how, what, why we do it and, and what, what we get out of it. And really, and this is 100% True, we would probably just talk to each other for an hour and a half every couple of weeks about what's going on in the world of food safety anyway, and we just started recording it and putting it out there, and all of a sudden, you know, small amounts of people happen upon it and, and listen to it, and then give us feedback that we then, you know, cyclically talk about. Um, and so for tonight, we're gonna talk a little bit about what's going on in the world of food safety, things that we see sort of today. Um, but really what works in, in a situation like this for us is to um, engage with you, have a, a good question and answer period, and you know, anything that you have, any questions you have that are about food safety, or I mean not food safety, um, I guess within reason, we've opened it right up there. I'm prepared <laughs> to talk about food safety, hockey, and dogs, and then everything else Donald will take. Um, <laughs> No, but I mean, that's, that's essentially what, what we do, is uh, try to connect um, what we research to, um, I guess, popular culture and things that are going on uh, in the world, whether it's around food or, or not. Yeah, so, um, so be thinking of your questions. Um, one of the, the segments that we've been doing on the show recently, which really seems to resonate peop with people, is like food safety in real life. So have you ever, have you ever wondered about X, Y, Z, and so now's your chance to ask those questions. So be thinking about those questions. Um, if you are uh, too shy to get up and use the microphone, we do have some index cards up here, so if you wanna um, uh, come up and get an index card and write down your question, we'll read it and we'll answer it. But, um, so uh, what, um, what would you like to, to talk about today, Ben, uh, while they're thinking about their questions? Uh, me, personally, I would like to talk about um, lifting the lid on toilet plume aerosol, a literature review with suggestions for future research. I think that's a good place to start. Um, so <laughs> that's, a tar that's a title of an actual real thing, yeah. which we will link to in show notes. So um, one, of, one of our colleagues, uh, one of the things that that we do, and I guess we should step back a little bit, talk about cooperative extension. For those who don't know, Don and I are both uh, at land-grant universities, and a majority of our time, what our uh, uh, respective states pay us for, is to answer questions, both like, you know, in a, someone has a question and we give them an answer right away, or try to come up with some solutions to problems that exist in the food world, and a lot of where Don and I spend our time, where a lot of our crossover is, is around restaurants and, um, and restaurant food safety. So Don, um, Don works uh, in the area of hand washing. For the last few years, I've worked a lot in the area of norovirus, and really my, like one of my favorite topics um, around norovirus is vomit, which you probably didn't think you were gonna hear about vomit. Um, tonight, uh, but I, I was fortunate to be part of a project at MC State where we built a vomit machine, which sounds like exactly like you think it is. It was a simulated diaphragm with like a jug of simulated vomit, and it would, um, 
we had a graduate student who we asked her to view like hours of people vomiting on YouTube <laughs> um, to get a sense for this she for went science, to graduate school for science for science um, to to get a sense of how often people inhale and cough before a vomit event and so we could simulate what it looks like and then put a bunch of norovirus particle like things into it to get a sense of if norovirus aerosolizes norovirus if you're not familiar with it is we we we'll talk we'll our world of food safety talks about big statistics of how many people get sick. We get about 48 million cases of foodborne illness a year. About half of those are probably viruses, and norovirus would be the largest group of those. So it's from a public health standpoint, it's a really big area. And so we built this vomit machine. Where it moves into to toilets, what we did was in this like box to see did it aerosolize. And what we're doing right now um, as we go forward in the next year or so, is pointing that vomit machine, Don doesn't know this, towards no. a toilet to see when someone vomits, where, how far do you, do you need, do uh, virus particles go? There's a lot of practical use to this. And um, I'll give you one example. I've worked um, with uh, a few major food service companies, fast food companies, where this may surprise you, may not. Um, a food service company like a Burger King or McDonald's or Chick-fil-A or Taco Bell, they're constantly dealing with people vomiting in their restrooms. Kids, you know, not kids, alcohol-related, not alcohol-related, whatever. Um, but there's a lot of vomit, and they have this really practical question, which is, when someone vomits, how far around the vomit do I need to clean it up? And how do we answer that? Science. Like, and that's really what it is, like to get a sense of how far and what does that look like and to help them so they can put it into their standard operating procedures. So we, we have some other stuff around toilets. Yeah, so, so this, this was an article that appeared in the American Journal of Infection Control in 2013. And it's one of the things that is, if you, if you study food safety research and if you run a, a food microbiology laboratory, uh, you, in order to do any sort of experiments at all, you have to get approval from your university. And one of the things that they're very concerned about in any experiments where you're actually working with real live bacteria in the laboratory is what's the potential for the workers in the laboratory harming themselves. And one of the common ways that that happens is when those workers create an aerosol. And there's a lot of different ways that you can create an aerosol. One way that you create an aerosol is when you vomit. Another way that you create an aerosol is um, if you drop something uh, into uh, a container of water. Another way that you create uh, an aerosol is by flushing a toilet. Um, you can create an aerosol just by s simply swirling a test tube. And so what those aerosol generating procedures do is that they basically cause small particles of liquid to move into the air. And if those particles of liquid contain microorganisms, those organisms can float around the laboratory, they can float around the bathroom, they can float around the kitchen, um, and they can actually lead to outbreaks. One of the, the outbreaks that we've talked about a number of times on the podcast is, was a very interesting one. So it was a norovirus outbreak, and it was related to a traveling sports team. I think it was a girls' soccer team. And a whole bunch of um, the the, the young women on the soccer team got sick because someone had a bag of cookies in a bathroom where, in a hotel, where someone who had norovirus was sick. 
And then later, they took those cookies to, to other, and the cookies obviously weren't visibly contaminated, and they fed those cookies to a bunch of other people on the soccer team, and they all ended up getting norovirus. And so understanding aerosols and understanding the conditions under which microorganisms move is, is incredibly important. And, and one of the ways that we advance science, and it's a particularly favorite way of mine, is by doing literature reviews. And what you do in a literature review is you go out and you survey all the literature, you put together all that information, that quantitative information, and you try to distill out some facts and some science from that, and also, as it says right here uh, in the, the title, um, suggestions for future research. And this is, this is a critically important part of, of doing science. And, uh, and so it's, it's, I just, uh, a friend of ours, uh, actually Ben's uh, former uh, major professor, um, was, was writing a blog post, and he's like, hey, you know, you guys, can you look up this, I I'm I'm, remember this article from a few years ago, can you look it up and send it to me? And, and, and so I did, uh, but in the meantime, I said, you know, that's also an excellent topic to talk about on the podcast. So uh, it's, you know, there's, there's just, um, it's just a really exciting world of aerosol and uh, vomit and diarrhea out there. Yeah. And I'll, I'll read just from this, uh, a, lot of, a lot of what we do on the podcast is like look stuff up on the internet <laughs> and then read it to each radio. other, so might as well follow that format um, here. And I think from the summary and conclusions here, my favorite part is contaminated toilets have, clearly, have been clearly shown to produce large droplet and droplet nuclei bioaerosols during flushing, and research suggests that this toilet plume, which is a great word, great phrase, uh, could play an important role in the transmission of infectious diseases for which the pathogen is shed in feces or vomit. And so think about um, the practical side of this when I was telling you about the vomit machine. Very much um, uh, the, the restaurant, food service, food processing, farms, doesn't really matter where you are in the food world, if a pathogen gets introduced somehow into that system, spreads around, you increase the likelihood of business loss, public health impacts. Those are the two things that, that we really focus on in, in food safety. And here we are kind of this like, in this situation where we, you know, obviously people are gonna have to go to the restroom while they're working. How do we manage toilet plume? And how do we manage cleaning and sanitizing in that, in that system? And how do we, a lot of what, what Don and I um, look at from two different angles is if we have food employees, someone who's in there, how do we communicate to them that it's important that after they flush the toilet that they don't go like rub their hands all above where the toilet is and pick up little, you know, bacteria or viruses and then go make your sandwich at Subway or wherever you ate lunch. Um, that's a lot of what we, what we really focus on is trying to change, change those behaviors and look at from a scientific standpoint where the, where the focus needs to be. So while we're talking about restaurants and, and the crazy things that people um, do in, in restaurants, can I ask you a crazy question about potato washing? Yeah, I was hoping you were going to ask <laughs> potato washing. So um, we've kind of, um, we get, we get uh, uh, emails from listeners, which we do our very best to answer on every podcast, but we also have sort of developed um, um, a network of folks in the food safety uh, and food science community, and sometimes we get asked questions. And so this is a question that came to us via another faculty member, via another faculty member. And so um, I'll read to you from the email, and then you can maybe offer me your, your thoughts on this, Ben. So the, the, the emailer writes, good morning. We got a crazy question today. Some employees in a school kitchen are washing their baking potatoes in the dishwasher. This is the procedure that they're using. 
Unhook the detergent and rinse. I guess that means rinse the dishwasher. Run several empty trays through the dishwasher. Drain the dishwasher. Rinse the dishwasher. Refill the dishwasher. Run the potatoes through on dish trays. Hook up the detergent and rinse. Run several empty trays through to prime the detergent and rinse. And they are going through this complicated eight-step process because they don't want to wash these potatoes by hand. This sounds like an incredibly complicated um, process. Now, um, uh, uh, the friend of ours that yeah, emailed this to us, um, uh, she has some, some comments. Um, she says, um, in my opinion, a dishwasher is a dishwasher and should not be used as a vegetable washer. She's Good. like a hard-line scientist. Hard-line dishwasher. Dishwasher. Yeah. Dishwasher, dishwasher. Yeah, and if and 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 it's just it's kind of this, and I would have predicted this um, based on her her personality. She's uh, she's pretty she's a hardliner. Um, she says, "What controls do they have in place for unhooking and hooking up the detergents and sanitizers?" I would insist on written documentation. Of course, you would, Linda. Um, I would be concerned that dishes would not be adequately cleaned and sanitized if the recommendations were not made. I would say also the other thing that I'm worried about is what if someday somebody forget somebody just comes into the kitchen. They're like, "Yeah, this is how we clean the potatoes," and and they didn't tell them. That, First, you have to unhook the detergent and unhook the sanitizers. So detergent is great for washing dishes. It's not designed for washing potatoes. So that's, that's a little bit about my reaction. What do you, what do you think about yeah, that? Yeah, no, and I, I'm, I'm going to go, I guess, sway a little bit to the other side. I work quite a bit with um, school systems in North Carolina where, where I'm based and um, spend a lot of time with cafeteria staff. And there's a lot of, lot of times where um, it really... Um, entrepreneurial kind of mind looks at a system and it's like how can we make this a little more efficient how can we make this a little better for whatever reasons like there's a lot of stuff coming from from either either side we and I'll speak on behalf of Don just a little bit here I think we kind of err on we focus a lot on microbial contamination uh, bacteria and, and viruses the soap detergent other um, maybe chemical or toxin uh, the chemical toxins aren't really areas that we see a lot of public health risk from, or at least a lot of public health consequences. We try to compare the burden. So for me, I look at dishwasher, all of those things absolutely true. The likelihood of someone getting sick from it is still really, really low. The likelihood of a kid getting like a mouthful of detergent is higher than if they weren't using that system, but it's not really like a really high risk thing. And a lot of where, where we've seen food safety move in the last 20 or 30 years is really around this area of risk. And that's where, where Don and I both lie, where we look at what's the consequence of something and, and we can measure that. We can talk about burden. You know, is someone likely gonna die from this? Is someone gonna get sick? Are there long-term consequences? Or is this like a mouthful of soap, which is way here on consequence? And then we, multiply that by the likelihood that it's gonna to happen to come up with uh, a calculation of, of risk. And to me, this process is pretty low risk from a food safety standpoint, um, and it's a little higher risk from a quality standpoint, but it's pretty unlikely that someone's gonna get sick from it. But it's also not something that I would go to the schools that I work with and say, hey, I just learned about a new way to wash potatoes. Um, throw it in your dishwasher. Um, yeah. Yeah. So let's so let's move let's move from the the small theoretical risk to an actual real risk. And so um, and let me. This is again. This is time for audience participation. So um, 
Uh, I want to ask you guys, how many of you um, have, have heard that there was a food poisoning outbreak linked to Kellogg's Honey Smacks cereal? Can I just see a show of hands? So, so that looks like about maybe a, a quarter of the audience. So, so there was a, this was a rather significant outbreak, and, and I'm going to read to you uh, from the uh, CDC webpage. It says, the multi-stake outbreak of Salmonella mendaca infections linked to Kellogg's Honey, Honey Smack cereal final update. Uh, and so, uh, so, this, uh, so this says basically that as of September 26, 2018, this outbreak investigation is over. That means CDC is stopping their activities. Um, uh, 135 people were infected with the outbreak strain from 36 states, 34 people were hospitalized, and no deaths were reported. Um, now, I don't know about you, but uh, at least when I was studying food safety, you know, 30, 30 years ago, um, we didn't really think about things like cereal causing outbreaks like this. So how, how closely have you been following the outbreak, and what are your, um, what are your thoughts? Have you heard anything um, uh, from your colleagues in the industry or in public health? Yeah, this is, it's an, it's an interesting outbreak um, for a, a few reasons. One, cereal, I, you know, breakfast cereal is not something that would be typically cooked at all. You know, there's no one out there who's, I think, and, and this is where I, I do a lot of consumer research. I shouldn't say no one. I would say it's a really slim portion of the consumer base is probably heating up their honey smacks. Um, and so that's a, that, that would be the control measure, right? So uh, cooking them, doing something to it with liquid. And that's the, Don, Don's kind of alluding to, um, something that, that we've learned in the last 20 or so years around salmonella. Salmonella is really hardy from a microbiological standpoint. You can, the, the more you stress salmonella, especially by drying it, the longer and it'll survive. It's not gonna grow when there's not a lot of moisture around. If it's dry heated, it's, it's not gonna you know, get worse, but it's gonna persist. Um, we, you may have uh, heard of outbreaks, salmonella outbreaks linked to peanut butter in the past. Uh, we've had a few major ones here in the U.S. that have really been linked to roasting peanuts. Um, and, and this one, to me, I, I think about my, I have two kids, are 10 and 8, and we have probably 12 different cereal boxes that are in our pantry right now that I would not be able to tell you when they were opened. Because if you, if you have kids, or you may remember this when you were a kid, opening up like a new cereal box is like a present, and then you never finish the old one. And so you end up with these like four or five, right now we have a lot of Kellogg Special K in different levels of consumption. And this is where the, the outbreak I think has become problematic is it, it sure back in, I think this, started back in June, May or June of this year. There are announcements about don't eat Honey Smacks, we'll have a recall, but those products, if, if it was in my pantry, there's probably some Special K that was open in like March or even earlier that's still sitting in my pantry that as a consumer I may not go to. So, so when we have these like dried foods, non-perishable foods lead to outbreaks, we end up with a really long outbreak duration and one or two illnesses every couple of days. And those are, in, in our world, that's not how outbreaks used to look. They used to look like everybody went to a wedding or a church dinner and everybody got sick like 12 hours afterwards and 
Seven people ended up in the same hospital and that was an outbreak. Now, almost all of our outbreaks, we have lots of them, but almost all of them are multi-state, one or two people in Delaware and two people in Pennsylvania and then someone in Utah that have the same genetic um, fingerprint of the bacteria that's, that, that they've uh, consumed. And this is kind of the, the way that it looks. And so it's a really good example of how food safety's changed and how epidemiology, the study of those, those outbreaks has changed because we're looking at products that are still on, on you know, in, in pantries months afterwards. Yeah, and, and you know, there's a, there's a, so what we know when, the, when an outbreak like this happens, we know what we know from the FDA and from the CDC. Um, the FDA is in, is, is in charge, for, for foods like this, the FDA is in charge of, of enforcement and food safety for meat and poultry products. USDA uh, would be the agency in charge of that. And CDC helps with both of them, and, and the CDC expertise is in investigation and epidemiology and sort of putting the pieces of the puzzle together. But there's a missing piece to this puzzle, and that is we don't know, we, we probably know which plant that this product was manufactured at. What we don't know is what went wrong inside that this plant. Was it a contaminated ingredient? Um, was it a sanitation problem in the plant? And it may be multiple, uh, multiple different reasons. And we may never know that. Um, now, what, where it may come out is that, so one of the people that, that, that Ben and I follow on Twitter is a food safety lawyer by the name of Bill Marler. And uh, Mr. Marler uh, got very, very well known in the food safety world when he defended the victims of the jack-in-the-box hamburger outbreak uh, many, many years ago. And he's, he's continued to make his career in this, in this area. And so very often he, when he, when he gets his clients, people that got sick in this case, um, uh, when to, to help his clients, he'll file Freedom of Information Act requests and he'll get information from the FDA or from the USDA or from the CDC about the outbreak and about the investigations that FDA has done of the, the processing plant where, where this was made. But right now, we don't have access to that information. And like I said, we don't know it. We may never know it. Um, but to me, it would be very interesting to know exactly what, what, what went on inside that processing plant that caused this particular problem to, to manifest. And that's, you know, one of the, one of the, the unfortunate things about, about food safety is very often you're just left with wondering, well, what happened? We really don't know what happened. In some cases, we learn. In some cases, some cases we have some ideas. Um, but in, in many cases, we never can really definitively, sometimes we can't even definitively mail, nail it down. Like we know that a given food product uh, is making people sick, but if it's a fresh produce item, we don't know necessarily um, which farm it came from. We don't know what the deficiencies were on that farm to cause that outbreak. And, and, and if you're going to be active and, and live in this world of food safety, you have to get comfortable sometimes with just not, simply not knowing and not having a definitive answer. Um, sometimes to, to finding uh, what's going on. We, um, about 10 years ago, there was, there was an outbreak that, that kind of exemplifies this we don't, we don't know situation. Uh, it was initially linked to tomatoes. And um, it, it looked like, you know, it was a big multi-state outbreak, salmonella outbreak, looked like tomatoes because everyone that was getting sick was eating tomato-containing dishes, largely at um, uh, Hispanic restaurants. And so there was something related to salsa, maybe. But historically, we had seen many salmonella outbreaks linked to tomatoes. So, so what um, you know, colleagues that we have in public health will do is kind of look at, okay, how many? Let, let's look at what, what they call a case control study. 
where let's look at the cases and let's look at a control group, see what people ate, and then do some fancy mathematics to connect what is likely from a statistical standpoint. And so that came back and, and there wasn't a really clear link, like it's only tomatoes, but the other things that were linked to, onions and um, hot peppers, jalapeno and serrano peppers, hadn't really been linked to outbreaks in the past. So best guess in public health was, this looks like a tomato outbreak. And so um, FDA went public with that information. And what ended up happening, um, two things. One, it wasn't tomatoes. Um, it was a, subsequently, a month and a half later, linked to serrano peppers. But the tomato industry was at a point where they were about to be in their most profitable time of the year. And so when a federal agency says, we think a whole bunch of people are getting sick from tomatoes, then no one buys tomatoes. And, and it's not just like consumers, but the Burger Kings and McDonald's of the world are like, well, we're not gonna buy tomatoes if people are getting sick from it. And so tomatoes weren't on the market, and it ended up costing the tomato industry like something exorbitant, like $200 million. And that's the kind of the messiness of epidemiology. And, one of the things that Don and I talk about on the podcast is um, a quote that came from this guy, Paul Mead, I think it is, um, who is an epidemiologist at CDC who said, uh, I'll paraphrase it or at least butcher the quote, but it basically is, if you, um, if you go too early, wait. <laughs> if you're wrong about the outbreak, you went too early, and if you, you went public with information too early. And if you're right about the outbreak, you went, with, you went public with information too late. There's never a point where you can get it right because you're always like trying to, um, uh, to gather enough information to be like, is it definitive? And often in our world, it's never definitive. It's like, here's our best guess. And, and sometimes your best guess is tomatoes and you're wrong. Right. Yeah. So, um, so, so, um, we, we do want to open it up for questions, okay? And so the way that we're going to know that you have a question is that you're going to get out of your seat and you're going to come down and you're going to stand in front of one of these two microphones and then you're going to ask your question. But um, we do have a question actually from, um, from Dr. McCoy uh, and it, it's related to uh, this, uh, this book and this, this series. And so I'm going, to read, I'm going to read her question which she provided in advance to us and then uh, uh, Ben's going to answer it and then, and then I'm going to give my answer. I'm going to so. answer it because I did my homework and read the book. Did you, did you did you really wait a minute? Did you really read the whole book? I read some of the book. <laughs> now wait a minute. I read some of the book too. I've read more of the book than you did. How much did you read? Like three chapters. Okay, I read one page. Yeah. So yes. <laughs> All right. But 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 we're ready. We know about the food in the book. In the book. Yeah. Right. Oh, and I would also say um, if you're on Twitter. Um, uh, N.K. Jemison, who's the author of this book, is, is she's an excellent, even if you haven't read the book, she's an excellent Twitter follow, so I encourage you all to follow her. Um, okay, um, uh, N.K. Jemison, The Broken Earth Trilogy. Seismic and volcanic disasters mean ashfall and an end to agriculture while the disaster is ongoing. People will need to live on what they've got stored up in underground, uh, stored up underground, in clay containers and in backpacks. In this case, cash bread and dried meat and fruit. Given your experience and training, what sorts of food safety issues would you expect that such subsistence would confront folks with? Um, and then and she says one, uh, this layperson's guess would be aflatoxin. Um, what could folks do in real life to make stored and or dried foods safer? So, so 
I, I actually have some, some data a little bit on this. I, I was part of a project uh, recently with some colleagues at um, USDA ARS, so that's the Agricultural Research Service, which is an arm of um, the United States Department of Agriculture, and they're really interested in dried meats uh, from a regulatory standpoint. And one of the things that, that they brought to my attention, right around the same time that, that Beth sent us this book, was a product called a meat bar. Does anybody, here's my polling part, has anybody heard of meat bars before? Okay, <laughs> two Anna's. Um, so, so meat bars, they're like, kind of like jerky, but not really, and it's really a dried meat, and it's like a dried meat granola bar that has nuts and berries, and it, it, commercially they're made with extruded meat, but there's a lot of people that make meat bars at, at home. So my colleagues at USDA, our part, portion of the, of the project was to do a, a nationally representative consumer survey of who, who makes, who knows what a meat bar is, who, if you do know what it is, do you eat them? If you eat them, do you make them and, and do you buy them? And how do you make them? And so what was kind of surprising as we really started to um, get into this and, and explore this question was we found about 20% of the people who, so about a third of the people in the U.S. say that they know what a meat bar is and that they have eaten one, which seems really high to me. Um, and of those individuals, about 20% said that they've made it at home. So we're getting down to not, you know, less people. And of those people that have made it at home, about 15% just dry, take meat, chop it up, no heat at all, air dry it, mix in berries, currants, blueberries, nuts, and then press it down like a panini press, which is really, could be really risky because there's not a way to treat if there's a pathogen there, if there's E. coli, 0157H7, or salmonella, that process is not gonna really do anything um, to it. So to me, as, as, you know, as Beth asked us this question, that's one of the things that I, that I thought about. What really matters in this sort of post-apocalyptic situation is how did people prepare for it before? And if there was heat treatment of that meat and it's dried and it has a low water activity, which is kind of a fancy way to measure moisture that's available to, um, to bacteria, that it would be really, from a food safety standpoint, really stable for a long time. That's the, the meat side of things. On the dried fruit, um, we, we would use kind of another technique to evaluate the safety of, of dried fruit, and that is, yeah, we can dry it and look at water activity, but also the pH matters in that case, and so the acidity of fruit, for the most part, if we look at fruits that we have, many of them are really high acid. There are a few that are kind of on this border of low acid and high acid. So like a high acid fruit would be a strawberry. Um, a medium, like on the border, is like a pear or a melon. Um, and so depending on what they're drying, um, they really could uh, do something where that food would be kept um, safe for, for quite some time. 
So you did my homework, Don. Good, good job. Um, well, I, I didn't, but I have an answer too. So, because I've been, I've been studying this for, for apparently, as you said, as a long a time. Long time. Long, long time. Um, so, uh, so I want to first like take the last part first, and so the the question ends with what could what could people do in real life to make stored or dried food safer and. There are people out there, um, you know, who are, I think Mormons have a religious requirement that they have to keep a certain stockpile of food um, in their house um, uh, by, because of their religious beliefs. And in fact, we have a colleague um, that works at uh, Utah State University, Brian Numer, and uh, Brian would be a great um, one to go to for specific advice on this. But um, I would say one big concern um, is that you really do have to practice um, rotation of your stock, right? So in other words, if you have a lot of food and you have a lot of food that maybe has a long shelf life but not an infinite shelf life, is you really have to be good about dating and about stock rotation. And so that what that means is that you're using the oldest food first and you have a system. Like if you, if you put a bunch of food in your basement um, you know, because you're worried about nuclear disaster or climate change or whatever, and then you leave it there for five years and then disaster does happen, you're not going to want to eat that food because the quality is not going to be good. So if you want to keep a stockpile of food um, for, for um, uh, the, the inevitable uh, uh, doomsday, um, you really do have to, that, that, that stock requires care and tending, and you do have to label it and be good with like first in, first out rotation so that you're using up the oldest stuff first. Um, that's my first point. Um, second point is, um, uh, I think Beth is right, that, that aflatoxin or other mycotoxins, that is toxins that are made by mold, would be a concern. Um, so if you look at the world of food safety, viruses and parasites don't grow in food, so, you, so basically the risk is there and the level's going to stay the same. Um, bacteria tend to grow in foods that are very, very moist, and then as you lower the, the water activity, as Ben said, or to, in layman's terms, the water content, um, then the bacteria stop being able to grow, but you do get mold uh, being able to grow, and that mold can make toxins. Some molds can make toxins, and those toxins can make us sick, either acute, acutely toxic or chronically toxic, and so mold um, is definitely part of that. I would say also, if you have these kind of foods and you're storing them for long periods of time, you do have to seal them, or you have to keep them away from moisture, because the only thing that's stopping those foods from spoiling is um, moisture, and so if they get wet, uh, if you're keeping these foods in underground and there's a flood, um, then you're going to get moisture in those foods and then they're going to start to, to spoil. And we should, probably, we should probably also talk a little bit about spoilage and food safety. So a lot of people, in the, in the minds of a lot of people that, that don't study this stuff like we do, um, there's a confusion about foods that, foods that are spoiled versus foods that are unsafe and they're not necessarily the same thing. Foods that are spoiled um, don't look good, they don't taste good, uh, they may smell, smell funny, um, but they may be perfectly safe to eat, even though they're totally disgusting. On the other hand, other foods that contain pathogenic microorganisms may look and taste just fine. Think about those uh, cookies that were left in, the, in the, the, the bag in the bathroom with the person vomiting. Those cookies looked and tasted just fine. They just happened to be contaminated with high levels of norovirus. And so, um, so, so, um, um, so think, about, think about moisture, and the moisture is going to either cause that food to spoil or cause uh, um, the uh, um, pathogens to be able to grow. The other thing that I would be worried about is um, there are probably going to be pests in this, in this world, uh, things like insects and rats, and, and they are going to find, uh, find their way to these dry foods and potentially eat them. Um, and then the other thing, too, with, and I just want to come back to this issue of meat bars and dried meat safety in, in, in general. Um, we have a, a, a good friend who's another podcaster who's a big uh, paleo diet guy, and he, he's always 
He's been a guest on the show before, and he, he wants to know about, or he's, he's emailed us before and wants to know about the safety of uh, how to make beef jerky safely. And so the key thing, and, and Ben kind of touched on this a little bit in his comment, so the, the key thing to worry about when you're trying to make dried meat and you're trying to make dried meat safe is that the, as you lower the moisture content of the food, it becomes a lot harder to kill uh, bacteria. Oh, apparently uh, um, uh, timer is just going off on my... Um, on my computer asking, uh, no, is, is the kitchen clean? Because oh. my wife has a recurring timer every night <laughs> to make sure that at uh, quarter of eight uh, the kitchen is clean. Um, I don't think she actually listens to it, but, uh, you know, it's a timer. So, gotcha, gotcha. Um, yeah. A little glimpse inside my world. Nice. Um, so, uh, but with respect to drying meat, um, <laughs> the, the thing to think about, so as you, as you lower the moisture content of food, this kind of seems kind of strange, but it actually becomes a lot harder to kill bacteria. And so if you take, were to take that meat bar that somebody made and then you were to heat it in the oven, it would take a long time to kill any pathogens that were there. And so the way to make bacteria susceptible to being killed is to make sure you're using moist heat or you're using high moisture conditions. And so the trick to making safe beef jerky is to make sure during the first part of the cooking process that you have a very, very moist environment. You have an environment with high relative humidity and then you're delivering the appropriate time and temperature combination to, to kill the bacteria that might be present in that beef jerky. And once you're sure that you've, you've introduced a sufficient amount of kill of the microorganisms, then you can take that beef jerky and dry it down, and then it, and it's okay after the dangerous bacteria have been killed, then it's okay to have a, a much longer, you know, a much uh, a lower moisture content that actually produces the beef, the drying process that actually makes the beef jerky shelf-stable and lets you keep it for, for weeks or months. So, um, and, I, and I do want to say, like, we're both professors, and so we will keep talking until Beth says we're done. Yeah. But we would much rather, I mean, we talk to each other all the time. We talked to each, we, we did a little mini episode at breakfast this morning. Yeah. Unfortunately, we didn't record it. But <laughs> what we would really much rather do is yeah. to have audience participation. But for that to happen, you guys have to actually get up out of your chairs and come down to the microphones and actually ask us questions. And we, like I said, we'll sit here and we'll talk, but it's much more fun for us if you come and you ask questions. Oh, and before you ask a question, just like heads up, this shouldn't scare anybody off, but we are recording this for a podcast, and I just want to let you know that we'll record your question. And, so. and your voice will be on the internet. Yeah. So. We, we, I don't want to like throw, throw that, uh, if that hopefully, and if that changes your decision on oh. asking a question, we have index, index cards. Index cards. And then we, yeah. We'll read your question. Yeah. So because you're recording this, somebody I might know uh, doesn't enjoy washing dishes. And so this person that I might know uh, will put their dirty dish in the refrigerator so that this person could perhaps use it later and not have to wash the dish in between. So how, how do you feel about this practice in put terms dirty, of... Put a dirty dish in the refrigerator? In order to use, use it again later and not nice. wash it in between. So... Yeah, okay. That's a, that's a really interesting strategy. Yeah. It's, it's not one that I've heard before. No, this is um, new. And I, as a person who does not like doing dishes, and as a person who's been known um, to reuse a dish, um, even in a salad bar setting in a restaurant where it's illegal, um, uh, I would say that probably, the st depending on how dirty the dish is, and oh, and I don't know if you folks saw the excellent posters uh, that, that, that uh, Dr. McCoy made up for this, but um, there's a catchphrase on the show um, that we use a lot called, which goes, it depends and it's complicated. 
And then we ring. And a then bell. we ring a bell. And then, now you um, have the full podcast experience. Um, so. <laughs> It depends and it's complicated, but there might be certain circumstances where if there's a little bit of the food and it's a little bit like, it's not like a, a, a really moist and it dries out and it gets kind of crusty, the bacteria are actually gonna die faster at room temperature. And you actually might be promoting bacterial survival to put them in the refrigerator. So, um, so, so the best practice, well, of course the best practice is to wash the damn dish, right? Um, or Asking for a friend, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, the next best practice, depending upon how dirty it is and what it's dirty with, might be just simply to leave it um, out. And then the other thing that we do in my house is we'll take the dirty dish when we're done with it and we'll put it on the, on the, the ground and the dogs will come and lick it out. And then... You know, theoretically, a dog's mouth is cleaner than a person's, right? I mean, I've heard that on the internet. It must be true. Yeah. Um, and then take the dog-licked dish and put it in the, in the dishwasher to be, to be appropriately washed. So um, that didn't really answer your question, but it did use up some time, and we have a line of people now over at this <laughs> microphone. So good job. Hi. Um, I have a housemate. I'll just go call him out. It's Bennett. His name is Bennett. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to make him listen to this. Uh, he... He eats a lot of chicken because he works out, and so he thinks he needs to eat a lot of chicken. Um, and he has this habit of distributing this, this chicken throughout our fridge to defrost it. And so during that process, water appears um, and just sort of you know, disseminates throughout the fridge. Uh, and so Bennett argues that this is just innocent, pure water. Um, but the, the other biochem majors in my house argue that plastic is a semi-permeable membrane, um, and so there's a chance for contamination. Um, Bennett gets very indignant when we bring this up, so I hope you guys can settle this. Thank you. <laughs> we we often get to settle like, debates like this, so I, I, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take a, yep. a jump on this one. So one of the things that um, we, we know from microbial surveys of packaging um, uh, in meat. That's because I was going to say the same thing. Damn it. Yes, good. Because I got to go first. Um, is that uh, it, it's not difficult to recover, so if it's in chicken's case, uh, Campylobacter and Salmonella from the outside of a package, even if it's sealed. And so what you want to let Ben know is that when it gets packaged in a meat processing plant, it's not like a sterile environment. They're not like coming out with really like clean. Um, you know, outside packaging, and there's a lot of meat juice that's happening at that, at that point, and it's not difficult to find it on the outside. The other thing that I'd highlight here is you're right on semi-permeable, but even more likely is that there are tears in that. So even if it was, like, you know, fully sealed, um, just in the transport packaging um, movement into, into someone's home in a shopping bag, especially if it was frozen, there's really sharp parts that will pierce that, uh, that. So I, and this is the other thing that Don and I are also not really in the business of telling people what to do for lots and lots of reasons. So what we try to do is talk about the risk and that's a, seems like a really high risk practice without being able to catch that liquid that might be dripping from the outside and condensation. So there are some ways to do that. I mean, putting it in um, a secondary like Ziploc bag that could be reused and then cleaned and sanitized would be one. Having it on the lowest part of the fridge with 
and if you have, if it's like a fridge like mine where there's crispers underneath shelves, having another like dish around it to keep that um, from happening. So, you, so we can give Ben some tips on this, but as, as it is, it sounds like a pretty risky situation. Appreciate you guys, thank you. No yeah, yeah, and I, the only thing I would add is that if I lived with that person and <laughs> I had food in that fridge, um, I would buy another fridge and use that fridge for just my food because I, and I'm worried too, like let's say, let's say there's some, some of the juice leak, leaks out and, and he, the, this person cleans it up, well, but if they just cleaned it up by wiping it around, maybe they just spread it around the kitchen, around the, uh, around the, 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 um, the, the refrigerator. And, and I, think, I think our friend uh, Sandy Godwin from Tennessee State may have even done surveys of sanitary quality of people's home refrigerators. And, you know, the, it's a technical term, but they're nasty. Um, yeah. so, so, you know, clean your fridge. Go home and clean your fridge. Um, but, yeah, definitely don't, don't let raw chicken juices leak on yeah. it, no. Or make Ben get his own fridge. Yeah, that's a better yeah. idea. A, a special thawing fridge yeah, just thawing, for the yeah, chicken. Yeah. chicken. A little thawing. one. Yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. And you could call it his workout fridge. <laughs> you not believe and, the indignation when I brought up that this might be an issue. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Um, so you guys kind of talked about this before, but with produce and how long is too long, you know, when do things actually spoil and when can you not eat them? I recently listened to a podcast that talked about, like, spoiling fruit and also food waste. Mm. So how do we kind of balance those two? When should we not be eating bananas anymore, I guess? <laughs> yeah, that's so, a great question. So that's, a, that's an excellent question. And so um, let, let's talk about bananas first, because I think that that's a very, very clear-cut case. Um, there is no amount of time when it's not okay to eat bananas, right? Because ultimately they can even be made into banana bread. And so, and plus bananas come with a natural packaging. So, um, so I, I'm much less worried about, about uh, bananas. Um, but, the, but your point about food waste is a really good one. And, and the issue of food waste has come up again and again in a number of contexts over the past couple of years. And it, again, it comes back to it depends and it's complicated that it's a... It's a very, you can ring the bell. I was going to. <laughs> Couldn't reach it quick um, enough. Um, and, and in fact, I was part of uh, an industry consortium that tried to come up with some guidelines, and it failed. Um, and and it, it failed in part, and I'll, I'll kind of, I, don't, I mean, I don't, I don't want to throw my industry colleagues under the bus, but I'll throw them under the bus a little bit here. I mean, and, and I would say that there's lots of really great people out there in the food industry trying to make food safe, and, and some of them are our friends and our colleagues. Um, but it is complicated to try to figure out the answer to the question. Um, in to bring it back to your first point about fresh produce, though, I would say, um, generally speaking, if the, if the produce is unsafe because it contains pathogens, it was unsafe when it came to you. And the growth of spoilage organisms are only going to work against those pathogens that are present. And so the longer it stays in your fridge, it's probably not going to become less safe. Now, maybe you could argue that if there was temperature abuse and there were some damaged places where the, the, the leaves were damaged and then pathogens could grow in the moisture that they, you know, and you had temperature abuse because your fridge wasn't really super cold, you might ha the risk might go up. But generally speaking, the simplest thing to do is to, is to, 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 you know, like to 
prepare, let's say it's a head, a head of lettuce, to prepare it when you bring it home from the supermarket and then just try to eat it up as quickly as possible. But that's, that's a really long non-answer to your question. But, but we are going to, I would say, as a community, a community of food scientists and, and uh, food safety scientists and people concerned about sustainability and food waste, um, we're going to continue to work on this issue and try to figure out what the best way forward is. There's a whole, again, this is a whole separate discussion, but what about supermarkets that have food that's almost expired. Could they donate that to a food pantry or do they have to throw it out? Well, if it's something like yogurt that's, that's pa almost past its date, well, it, yogurt's made from pasteurized milk and what is yogurt but sour milk already? And so, if it, so, so there may be situations with foods like, like yogurt where it's a little bit more clean cut to say, okay, we're gonna use this, we're gonna make this available to people who need it past the, the shelf life date. Um, or even pasteurized milk, it's been pasteurized, right? It might be spoiled, but if it's still smells okay, and this is, this is antithetical to what we, we've been taught to teach people when in doubt, throw it out, and don't taste foods to, to show that they're safe, but in fact, with pasteurized milk, it's been pasteurized, and so you could actually taste that pasteurized milk. So that was a bit of a long rant, and, and I kind of danced around your question, maybe answered it in a few parts. Maybe Ben can do a better job. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I can do a better job, but two, two things come to mind when we, when we think about fresh produce and spoilage and safety, and we've had a couple of outbreaks in recent years where um, the quality of a food has not gone down, but safety became more problematic, and it was linked to listeria. So it's, a, it's our one foodborne mm. pathogen that grows slowly but fairly well at refrigeration temperatures, and where Don talked about like how cold your, your fridge matters, and this is one where if your refrigerator is at 39 degrees or holding food at 39 degrees versus 45, those six degrees makes a huge difference in how quickly listeria will grow. And that um, the spoilage microorganisms, and especially uh, cantaloupe was, was one um, that was linked to, I think it was 125 illnesses and 28 deaths um, back in 2013, 2012 or 2013, uh, largely with elderly population, uh, actually, not largely. Almost all of the um, of the deaths and hospitalizations were um, with with an aging um, aging population. Where um, during the investigation, it was found that a lot of the cantaloupe was cut. You know, buying a whole cantaloupe and for a, you know as someone who isn't going to eat a whole cantaloupe and then holding it in the refrigerator for eight, ten, twelve days, that increased the risk. Um, so cantaloupe's one that I would worry about, and, and cut uh, leafy greens. We recently had an outbreak earlier in 2000, early this year, that was linked to listeria in, in that case, where there was no signs of spoilage uh, over time. And I learned, we learned, Don and I talked about this on the podcast, that um, with better washing technology in, um, with bag salad, the shelf life from a quality standpoint is up to like 24 days, 26 days. Um, so you could definitely have pathogens grow. But something like bananas, strawberries, where there's spoilage microorganisms there that are either gonna outcompete or it's just not one that's, that, that we've seen um, outbreaks linked to in the past, um, I, I think those ones are, are fine. They're gonna spoil before they, before yeah. they get riskier. Yeah, and, we, and we've done research in my laboratory where we basically took 
cantaloupe or other melons, inoculated them with listeria, and put them at room temperature um, for you know, not very much time at all, and you get significant uh, growth in pathogen, which increases the risk, and they look just like the stuff that is, is, is fresh. And so that's one of, the, you know, one of the other things that we often get asked um, is like, what foods don't you eat? And one of the foods that I really don't eat unless I prepared it myself is cut melons, uh, because I just don't know how it's been handled. And y if you have leafy greens that have been temperature abused, they look it. Melons, right. they don't, and, and, and Ben's right about the, the risks from listeria, so. I guess a small second question going mm -hmm. off of that. Um, so are those sell-by dates more a marketing thing, or is that more scientifically determined? It, it's, really, it's really marketing. It's really a quality determination, and so I, I won't say that it's not scientifically determined because someone has done the work on that product to see where it's at its highest quality. Oftentimes that's done with sensory panels, so in a very scientific way where you bring people in to taste food and with sort of trained tasters and to see over time how much, um, how much deterioration there is in the, in the quality. But those dates, those sell-by dates, are not there for safety reasons. In fact, we don't have any expiration dates we don't really have in the U.S. We have sell-by dates, use-by dates, and... and um, Sell-by, there's one other date. Anyway, best buy. Best buy, yeah, best buy dates. Um, and they're really all for quality reasons. The sell-by date tells, it's often uh, applied by the store, saying we know that we're not going to be able to move this product if it looks different after X amount of time. So just from, from history. And then the use-by and sell-by are spoilage-related. The only one, the only food that we really have um, in the U.S. where we have... Um, uh, you know, safety issues would be something like uh, baby formula, where the nutrition aspect of that formula degrades over time. And so that one, when it's the only source of nutrition for an infant, um, there's a real safety, uh, safety issue there. Yeah, and the other, the other food where, where safety, uh, uh, safety date labeling might be possible is something like deli meats, yeah. because we know that they have incredibly long shelf lives and listeria growth is a problem. The, in the United States, um, the, 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 the meat industry has pretty much taken care of that problem with some help from, from the USDA, because the, if you're making a food that doesn't contain um, ingredients that inhibit the growth of the organism, you're required to take certain actions or you have to do more intensive testing. And so the, the, the regulatory agency has basically designed those regulations to, 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 to encourage the industry to move towards better practices, which the industry has done. And the other thing, too, I just wanted to touch on, um, when you say that those, those dates are for marketing purposes, um, it's not it, marketing not in the sense of a negative, but really because what these right. companies want is they want you to enjoy the product the way that they intended, at the quality that they intended. And so their interest is in making sure that you have a high quality product to eat. Again, but again, back to the earlier point, just because the yogurt is one day past it, it doesn't mean it's not safe to eat, right? Or it doesn't mean it's magically going to become, you know, uh, radioactive or something, right? It's, it's, it's probably okay. It's just probably not at the level of quality that the company intended. Thank you. You're welcome. Let's go. We haven't taken a question from this side, so. Recently, there's been a rise in like niche um, grocery markets offering like package-free sections to kind of reduce and eliminate plastic waste as like sustainability measures, which I think is pretty cool. Obviously, I do see the food you know safety risk there. Do you ever think that you know enough measures could be in place where it could you know wide scale happen like all across the country at like big supermarkets? Yeah, and um, so I, I think one of the things that, that we see, especially in produce here in the U.S. and in Canada, North America is a lot of unpackaged 
type fresh produce. And um, to go to that aspect for other foods, I think is definitely possible. We don't see, uh, you know, there are friends that we have in the grocery retail industry would kind of argue like consumers coming in and touching things, that's a huge like norovirus risk. And there's a risk there, but we really haven't seen the public health aspect of that play out that we know of. Like it hasn't sort of created a, a, a blip on our, on our radar. Um, and so where you get into potential for, for package-free um, foods where I would see that there might be increased risk is these foods that may already carry a risk and spreading that around. I work, so I've mentioned this on the podcast lots, um, and it might be obvious from my, uh, my uh, accent, but I'm from Canada uh, originally, and there are a lot of bulk packaged food stores. I worked in one when I, when I was growing up where um, it was all dry goods pretty much, and then maybe some like preserved sugar type foods that were fully package free and you'd come in and scoop it out and it was just maybe, I don't know, 600 or 700 products that were in this, um, in bins. And um, for whatever reason in the US, that trend didn't happen at the same time, but it's really commonplace um, in Canada, but not like unpackaged, you know, stacks of meat. Uh, but for these for these dried foods, I think it's it's relatively low risk. Probably the bigger <laughs> risk is someone taking a scoop and having norovirus on their hands, putting it on that scoop, and then the next person come along grabbing that scoop and then not washing their hands before before they eat or you know touch their touch their mouth or, or something with it. But I, yeah, I, I really see a, a place for that um, that trend moving forward, and I don't see it as a as a real food safety risk as a, as a barrier. There may be some perceptions there in public health that it is, but I, 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 don't, I don't see it that, that way. Yeah, and, and one, one area where I think it really is gonna to start to, to come into play, and we talked about, we had dinner with some of the, the faculty here last night, and we talked about this, is with um, home delivery services, right? Uh, things, uh, things like um, Amazon Fresh, or, or things like Blue Apron, or HelloFresh, and things like that. And there's a, there's a, uh, a juxtaposition between the kind of packaging that you need to have to ensure temperature control and the desire to not have a lot of packaging, right? And so, and those two things are acting directly against each other. Now, what, what can happen in those situations is it can spur innovation and we can find technical solutions, things that are recyclable or that are low volume or can easily be um, uh, composted or something. Maybe you, can, maybe you can even make like packaging materials that are they're fully compostable. So there, but, but this is the issue of sustainability and the issue of, uh, to the other uh, question or uh, comments about food waste, these are all like really important issues right now and they are ones that are, are, we are increasingly being asked to address as we think about these food safety issues. So th these questions are like right on point with what the, what the thinking is right now in the industry and the drivers that are moving the industry forward. So thanks for those questions. Hi. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about either really good things or and or really bad things you've seen in the food safety industry in other parts of the world. Ooh, other parts of the world? Um, wow. Well, I have to say the, a place that Ben and I have both visited um, is uh, the city of Dubai. Mm -hmm. And we have a friend um, named Bobby Krishna 
I don't know if he listens to the podcast or not, uh, but Bobby basically runs food safety for the city of Dubai. And um, they, I don't know if you know much about Dubai, they have a lot of money there. And so Bobby has just a ton of resources to do really cutting edge innovative things in terms of food safety. And so he's doing things in Dubai that just aren't economically possible elsewhere in the world. And you know, I mean, and you can, I mean, you can be upset with the way that they do things in Dubai to a certain extent, but in terms of food safety, Bobby runs just an absolutely top-notch operation. He has a food safety conference there every year where he brings in people like Van and I from around the world and talks about, and to make sure that his people are really educated on cutting-edge stuff. So I would say that's one example of a really innovative thing that we've seen. It's not necessarily replicable other places, um, but that's, that's a very cool and a very good thing, and, and Bobby is really leading the way, and, and props to him for doing that. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll give an example that maybe isn't really bad um, from an international standpoint, but I had a chance to go to Guatemala a few years ago to do some food safety training, and one of the things that we did as part of that was um, sort of take a trip through um, some sweet um, uh, snap pea production, and so snap peas being something that historically were, were cooked but are increasingly being consumed raw, in, in North America, and it wasn't, I, we, we didn't see anything that, that, that was out of place to, from anything that we would see in the U.S. from a food safety practice standpoint. What amazed me the most was the, the snap peas were, um, they all went to a, you know, the system that we saw, all went to one central packing facility, and they would get products from something ridiculous like 10,000 farmers. And so it sounds like immense, right? Like 10,000 farmers all coming, delivering stuff to one packing facility. And so when someone said that, I was like, what, like, how do you even manage that? And they said, well, farmers is a really loose term. What we're really talking about are subsistence farmers that may be farming a third of an acre. And on one road, there's 40 of them. And they've got someone who works for our company that will go down that path and get products from 40 people. And then you know, multiply that by hundreds to get to, or 100 to, to get to, to 10,000 farmers. And every day, this is what's going on from a management standpoint and trying to figure out like what, a lot of what we do um, in fresh produce in the US is we spend time on farms looking at risk, and each farm absolutely has its own issues, whether it's water quality, uh, employees, um, just in general infrastructure, where, how they're doing soil amendments. Everything's really different from, from farm to farm, and I say that from, from experience in a few, different, um, a few different locations across uh, North America. And so the, just the immense aspect of how do you, how do you train 10,000 individuals to, to do food safety in the way that you expect them to do it, where here we would be looking at like maybe 500, and that they would then spread that, that information down, but they have control on those you know, 500 suppliers um, uh, of you know, one packing facility over top, so they can set standards. This just seems so, so immense. So again, I don't think it's, it, it's not something that I would say was really bad, but it was really, really different. Um, and it, many of the snap peas that we eat come from 
this, uh, this area in Guatemala. I mean, the U.S. is the biggest uh, importer and they're our biggest supplier. So it was, it was really interesting to go and see this system that was totally different and a product that I, that I eat, like that, that I, I just didn't get a sense of. Um, and I would say that that's probably uh, a, a good example of many of the foods that we, that we import. There was a hepatitis A outbreak linked to pomegranate seeds a few years ago. And, and this is one that, you know, we don't always know, like, when these outbreaks happen, a lot of the time we learn what the process is. So it's like, I've eaten pomegranates, I've eaten pomegranate seeds, I didn't know how you get a bunch of pomegranate seeds out of a pomegranate to make a massive box of them that goes into frozen berry mix. And so as, as this outbreak happened, you know, we email and text around to people who are in the industry about like, how does this work? And so the answer was, um, and still is, they're all harvested by hand. There are people that are cutting pomegranates and digging them out by hand and putting them into bags. And I was like, whoa, that makes hand washing really important. And, and so just thinking about that aspect, a lot of the food that we do get and import um, puts a lot of pressure on those importers to, to, do, to make sure that they understand how it's getting there and what, you know, what, what they do. But I wouldn't say, like, it's hard to put a value on it. Like, I wouldn't say it's bad or good. It's just that's the way it is, so how do we manage it? Thank you. Yeah, and just like one, one follow-up, which is would sort of tangentially related, which we often get asked, is like, like one of the things that we know about in developing countries is that they are often exposed to foodborne pathogens um, and other, other you know, human pathogens, and they develop immunity. Why, why, why can't we do that in this country? And the answer is that we have a very, very good public health system and we treat our water and we have the resources to do that. And the reason why the, the people in those countries are, um, have such a healthy immune system is that most of them didn't live to adulthood. Most of them died. And so, so th that's not really a solution. We, we have solutions in terms of vaccination. Um, that we are increasingly having been able to, to create uh, vaccines for a lot of foodborne diseases or, or, or organisms that can be transmitted via food. And so I think we're, we're getting there. But, but to say that the solution is to revert to developing country public health infrastructure, I mean, it may happen naturally if we, as we fail to take care of the infrastructure in this country, but that's a different discussion. Yeah. Um, but, but, it's not, um, but it's not the way forward. The way forward is to elevate those folks and to raise them up to the standards of this country. But that's, just, again, I'll get off my soapbox. But that was just a, it's tangentially related to your, to your thought. And then it goes to Ben's question about like snap bees from Guatemala and how do we how do we help them manage that risk? Hi, uh, so I have this really weird friend. Uh, shout out Jack. Is, um, it, is it Ben? Uh, no. No. Okay. <laughs> no, no. Um, <laughs> and so whenever uh, preparing watermelon, uh, he always insists on cleaning the outside of the watermelon, even though you don't consume that part mm -hmm. uh, before eating it. And I was just curious as to what you guys think about that. Yeah. Good. Good question. Um, so cleaning the outside of the watermelon is something that I've been known to do. I do it more with the outside of a cantaloupe um, or a honeydew melon, but a watermelon has definitely, definitely happened, especially if there was, um, there was uh, a, uh, like any uh, dirt and buildup on the outside of it. And the reason is, and I'll, I'll go to the cantaloupe example more than anything, is if there was salmonella on the outside of that um, cantaloupe, and I cut through, I can drag that pathogen through the meat that I am gonna eat. 
And so um, watermelons, and it really depends where, wh what part of the country, and cantaloupes, it depends on what part of the country they come from, uh, on whether they've already been washed before they get to you uh, as a consumer. So you're living in North Carolina, almost all of our cantaloupes are washed and almost all of our watermelons are washed because the conditions that they're grown on are pretty muddy. If you go to the western part of the country, um, a cantaloupe that comes out of California has never touched water other than like irrigation water and or rain if it rained there. Um, because the, those conditions, there's not soil buildup um, on, on the outside. And there are different risks to adding water or not adding water. Water could rinse stuff off, but it also could mix a whole bunch in and deposit on a lot of uh, cantaloupes. So um, a legitimate risk reduction step in a home, especially around cantaloupes, so wash, wash that off, especially if you're not gonna eat that cantaloupe sort of right, you know, right away or it's gonna go to some, you know, uh, some sort of um, you know, dinner where it's, gonna, where it's gonna sit out and could grow. But yeah, there is there is a risk of like cutting through and and depositing it on the meat. Yeah, and and, and just to, just to add to that, like it's not a theoretical risk. Like actual actual scientists, not not Ben or I, but people that we know have actually done those experiments. Um, and then just the other thing to to his point, um, we we um, we were talking before about an outbreak from cantaloupe, uh, and there was a particular one a few years ago linked to Jensen Farms. And what these farmers were doing, what this farm was doing, is they were washing their cantaloupe. Um, because it was required by the retailer that they were selling to, but the device that they were very, very innovative and, and, and they used an old potato washing machine. I guess they should have, speaking of potatoes, they should have just run it through a dishwasher. dishwasher yeah. um, but they, but they had old, <laughs> they had an old detergent first. Oh, yeah, exactly, <laughs> an old potato washing machine, and it's, and, it's, and it got the dirt off the cantaloupes. But what also essentially what it did was it built a giant machine for inoculating these cantaloupes with listeria, and they actually ended up being four different strains of listeria linked to this one outbreak from this one farm, um, all because they were trying to get the cantaloupe clean and they didn't do a good job. Now, to what extent? Were, could people have mitigated that risk by washing those cantaloupes and then and being careful in their home kitchens? We don't know because we can't reconstruct those scenarios, but certainly um, it's not gonna raise the risk and it might, it might very well lower the risk, and especially for something like a watermelon, which is a very easy to clean surface. Part of the problem with cantaloupes is it's got that, that netting on the outside. It's a little <coughs> bit harder to clean, but at least with, with the cantaloupe, you can get a scrub brush and you can really really do a good job, but it's, not, it's, it's definitely not gonna increase your risk and it, and it, might, it might reduce the risk, and so again, Ben and I would say both both probably a best practice to do. So maybe your friend's not so weird. Yeah. I also have one more quick question. Uh, I noticed as you were answering one of the previous questions, your alarm went off again, and I was just wondering if the uh, kitchen was clean yet. Yeah, good, good uh, question. The, the alarm does not tell me whether the kitchen is clean, <laughs> only only that uh, it needs to be done. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Smart ass. That was good. I like that. Thanks so much for coming to visit us in uh, Geneseo. A, a couple of things. Uh, I have to confess, I'm fascinated with this vomit machine. Oh. Did, did, oh, you, get, did you give it a name, and can I buy one? <laughs> no, we didn't get a name, but it got a face. It has a face. It's got okay. a face, a really creepy clay mask. And it has a biological function, because it has to do with the angle that your mouth is. It needed to be weighted down, because it was just like this like PVC tube. And so, yeah, I got a clay, 
a really creepy clay face. So we, we will link to it in show notes. And um, if you're squeamish, do not Google North Carolina State Vomit Machine because would, you will see a picture. I, yeah. yeah, I would love to see a picture of it. Um, the other thing, sadly, I'm also fascinated with toilets. Um, <laughs> There's nothing I, sad yeah, about that. Be yeah. proud. Be proud. I, I think it's because in nearly 40 years of international travel, I've seen all kinds of toilets. Yeah. Um, and I was just wondering um, which kind of toilets are more likely to transmit disease, kind of the Western sit-down toilets or the squat toilets that you commonly see in, in Asian countries, but also in some other parts of the world right. as well? That. I think the short answer is we don't know. Yeah. Um, uh, as a way to start, I would start by maybe going back to that article, lifting the lid on toilet plume aerosol, and see what they had to say about it, because it's a relatively recent literature. I, I can't review. wait to get to that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Good reading, yeah. especially if you're on the toilet. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the, the short answer is I don't think we know. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, and, and I think it's important as, you, as, a, as a scientist to have an open mind, right? It may be that a pit toilet is, in fact, more sanitary. Um, but uh, short, okay. short answer is I, I don't know. Right. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks. Well, um, we still have answers, but if you guys are out of questions, um, uh, I think... Uh, I think probably, you know, uh, in, in real life, the music is swelling. Yeah. And Neil Young is rocking us out. That's our outro, That's our outro music. music so. Yeah. Um, so, again, I mean, thanks to uh, Dr. Beth McCoy for inviting us and allowing us to come just rant for an hour and a bit about mutation and vomit and toilets. And um, we appreciate all the questions. Yeah. Thank, thank you guys for coming. And, and thanks for listening. Thanks for the great questions. Thanks. Thank you. And we'll hang around and answer any questions you are too embarrassed to ask in public. <laughs>